Welcome to the Unmade Podcast, looking at media and marketing from an Australian perspective. I'm Tim Burrows. Recently, I published my first book, Media Unmade. It quickly became an Amazon bestseller. It's the story of Australian media's most disruptive decade. It's published by Hardy Grant, and you can buy it at all good bookshops and online. In the coming weeks, I'll be sharing the full audio edition of the book here on the Unmade podcast. Coming up is the next chapter. Now remember, only Unmade's paying subscribers get to hear every chapter. If you haven't already, you can sign up at unmade.media. As well as supporting my work as an independent journalist, you'll receive exclusive industry analysis in both written and podcast form. And once you sign up, you'll still be able to get our paid podcasts inside the app of your choice. It only takes a couple of clicks. Now, on with the book. Chapter 13. Predator and Prey. In which nine is tarnished by the snatching of a child on a Lebanese street. Seven is tarnished by its CEO having an affair with an employee. Musical Chairs is played with TV sports rights. And new media ownership laws turn everyone into predator and prey. Out of the blue, a video file arrives at Mumbrella House. It's less than five minutes long, and the first time I watch it, I squirm at the awkwardness. The second time, I start writing. It's a leaked recording of what was going on behind the scenes during a commercial break on yesterday's Nine News Now, the three hours of current affairs filler that goes out on Nine every weekday afternoon. The three-way split screen shows Nine Sydney newsroom journalist Julie Snook on the left, presenter Amber Sherlock in the centre, and a guest in the Melbourne studio, psychologist Sandy Ray, on the right. The three women are wearing different shades of white, and that's a problem. Things turn passive-aggressive fast. Sherlock is talking about Snook in the third person. I need Julie to put a jacket on because we're all in white. I asked her before we came on. Julie, you need to put a jacket on. Guest Sandy Ray laughs loudly before going through a pantomime of open-mouthed, embarrassed gasp and teeth-tight grimace as she realises Sherlock is not joking. I've been flat out. I didn't have time, responds Snook. Does someone... Sherlock cuts off her colleague with a raised voice. Come on, I told you two hours ago. You know, on chat room. Amber, I'm sorry. I've been flat out, honestly. I'll call wardrobe and we'll get something, responds Sherlock, picking up her phone from the desk in front of her. Looking off camera, Snook asks, If you give me a second, is there a jacket floating around out there? I've made this clear two and a half hours ago, Sherlock scolds Snook, who begins to lose her call. Amber, if it's an issue, I can get out of here. It is an issue. Go and grab a jacket. I wasn't saying it for no reason. The wardrobe girls will be furious downstairs. Again, Snook threatens to walk away. If it's an issue, I can just head on out and get back to work because I'm flat chat. 
I genuinely forgot. The screen goes black, but voices can still be heard. If it's an issue, I'll just jump on out, honestly, reiterates Snook. Fine, jump on out, fires back Sherlock. If that's what you'd like to do. Come on, wearing a jacket. I asked you two and a half hours ago. It's not the hardest request. Amber, please. This is not the only thing I'm doing today. Sherlock sounds like she's talking to somebody else. I know it's not your issue, but I did ask Julie two and a half hours ago. The audio drops out and the blank screen continues for another 20 seconds. When the picture comes back up, it's a full screen shot of Snook, who is now wearing a dark jacket. 15 seconds later, they're on air. The mean girls are gone. The three women beam at the camera. It's January 2017 and they're getting ready to talk about the coming inauguration of Donald Trump and his alleged predilection for golden showers. Time now to head into the chat room, Sherlock tells viewers. First up today, there are allegations that Russia has some extremely damaging information on Donald Trump, allegedly involving Trump participating in a very lewd sexual act. It's all pretty explicit and nasty. Sandy, if it's investigated and found to be true, should he be impeached? After I draft a diary item for Mumbrella and upload the video, I call one of Nine's PR people to give him a warning of what's coming when I hit publish in five minutes' time. Don't worry, it's just a diary piece. I console him. That's not going to help me, he replies. He is correct. The video goes around the world and Jacketgate becomes Mumbrella's most read article of all time. The next day it ends up on Jimmy Kimmel's chat show in the US. I don't know who decided to release this tape, but whoever that was, I just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart, says Kimmel. 14 months earlier. Hugh who? Nine's new CEO, Hugh Marks, was in his car, not far from the Sydney studios. He was heading for a workout at Willoughby Leisure Centre. On the speakerphone was Chief Financial Officer Simon Kelly. The two men were arguing about the future of the company, and, more widely, of the whole television industry. Marks had only been in charge for a few weeks. It had been an exceptionally smooth succession, when David Gingell announced he was stepping down as CEO of Nine in November 2015, he timed it perfectly. Already almost forgotten and indeed forgiven was an embarrassing public brawl Gingell had had with his old friend James Packer on a street in Bondi in May the previous year, which had ended up in all the papers. Nine was once again competitive in the ratings. It was safe from the banks and had floated on the ASX. Subscription streaming service Stan had launched and Nine was now a full five-city metro network after buying out Wing Corporation's ownership of Nine Perth and Nine Adelaide. Ginge was going to be a tough act to follow. The handover to Hugh Marks was almost a job swap. Marks had joined the board of Nine as a director in February 2013. Now he will be stepping up as CEO while Gingell would stay on as a director. I'd like to thank David Gingell for his tireless eight years, said Chairman David Haslingdon in the ASX announcement. He has led the company through a significant restructuring, 
while remaining an active and inspiring leader on a day-to-day basis. For those who weren't deeply entrenched within the television industry, it had been a case of Hugh Who. The ASX announcement spelled it out. He is a highly successful veteran of the media and production industry, with almost 20 years' experience as a senior executive in content production and broadcasting in Australia and internationally. He currently owns talent agency RGM Artists, together with ownership and management interests in a number of independent companies producing content for broadcast and pay TV. Previously, Mr Marx served as an authority member of the Australian Communications and Media Authority for over two years, following his seven years as CEO of Southern Star Group. Earlier, he worked as Nine Network Legal Counsel and then as Director of Nine Films and Television for seven years. And now that he was in charge, Marx would need to set a direction at a critical moment. There was a growing view that broadcast television's best days were behind it. Audiences for free-to-air television were slipping all around the world and the advertising revenue was beginning to do the same. But just as his counterparts at Fairfax, Greg Highwood and Chris Jans, had concluded that with the right cost base, there was still a business model for printed newspapers, Marx reckoned the same went for broadcast television too. And he also believed that the definition of television was changing. He would find himself at loggerheads with Chief Financial Officer Simon Kelly, who had himself been seen as a contender for the top job at nine. There was an argument that the television industry was in structural decline, and there's plenty of business wisdom that suggests the best thing to do with a profitable but declining company is cut back on investment and milk it for profits for as long as possible. Marx wanted more. Hugh, you've got to realise this business has terminal structural problems, Kelly told him. I fundamentally disagree with you, responded Marx as he drove down the hill. All we have to do is adapt what we're doing to reflect the way that audiences are now consuming content. On the 6th of January 2016, two months after Marx took charge, Nine announced that Kelly would be leaving. Later, I'd ask Marx if Kelly's departure was connected to their differing views on the future of television. Maybe part of it, he replied. The Beirut Bungle If things had gone just a little bit worse, Hugh Marks might have set a record for one of the shortest CEO tenures. In April 2016, the network was plunged into perhaps the biggest reputational crisis in its history. The disaster involved one of the jewels in Nine's Crown, 60 Minutes, the Sunday night investigative journalism programme launched in 1979 by executive producer Gerald Stone at the behest of Kerry Packer, with almost no expense spared. In the years that followed, 60 Minutes had become a fixture of Sunday nights with its household name presenters travelling the world to bring back big stories to Australia. It was a decades-long commitment to building trust in the Nine brand. This time, 60 Minutes was the story. It became embroiled in an attempt by Brisbane mother Sally Faulkner to retrieve her two children from Beirut, where their Lebanese father had taken them on holiday but never returned. Reporter Tara Brown, producer Stephen Rice, cameraman Ben Williamson and sound recordist David Ballment 
were detained by Lebanese authorities when the operation, which Nine was funding, went wrong. Very wrong. The children were snatched from a Beirut street while they were walking with their grandmother. Former soldier Adam Whittington, whose company, Child Abduction Recovery International, offered a service in recovering children who'd been taken overseas in custody disputes, led the mission. The authorities arrested the 60 Minutes team, along with the children's mother and Whittington, before they could slip out of the country with the children by boat. The authorities accused them of kidnapping offences. Initially, Nine tried to hide its involvement. They are journalists covering a story, that is all, claimed its spokesperson. That claim quickly fell apart. Fairfax newspapers produced bank documents that showed Nine had transferred cash to Whittington's bank account prior to the botched recovery attempt. It looked like a case of checkbook journalism, and given the transfer, reportedly $115,000, it seemed a large enough amount that it must have been authorised at CEO level. But Nine refused to disclose who had signed it off. Getting involved looked like stunningly bad judgement. Imagine the outrage if a Lebanese TV network had bankrolled and filmed a child being snatched from their grandmother on an Australian street. Marx wrote an email to staff. At no stage did anyone from 9 or 60 minutes intend to act in any way that made them susceptible to charges that they breached the law or to become part of the story that is Sally's story but we did become part of the story, and we shouldn't have. Worse yet, the 60 Minutes crew faced years in a Beirut prison if they went to trial, accused of conspiring in a kidnapping. News and current affairs boss Darren Wick flew out to Beirut as the 60 Minutes team prepared to appear before a judge. In a few frantic hours, Nine's local lawyer struck a deal with the children's father, Ali Elamine for the charges against its staff to be dropped. The company would never disclose whether money had changed hands, but the Sydney Morning Herald reported that it would have taken several hundreds of thousands of dollars. As a result, the authorities released the nine crew and Sally Faulkner without charge. Whittington spent three months in jail. He later said in a statement, "'The management of Channel 9 decided to abandon me "'and all the ones they recruited.' It made an agreement to settle the matter without us, which led to the release of the Australian crew and the mother who was in Babda prison, and we were kept as a scapegoat. Afterwards, Nine conducted an internal review involving the company's general counsel, Rachel Launders, the retired Gerald Stone, and former A Current Affair producer, David Hurley. Stone said, Regrettably, this has been the gravest misadventure in the programme's history. It's clear from our findings that inexcusable errors were made. The review also concluded, the erosion of clear and appropriate referral guidelines must also be taken into consideration as a failure at the management level of nine. The manner in which we produced Sally Faulkner's story exposed our crew to serious risks and exposed 60 Minutes and Nine to significant reputational damage, added Marx. We got too close to the story and suffered damaging consequences. The show's executive producer, Kirsty Thompson, 
and her predecessor, Tom Malone, who had handed over to her just a few weeks before the operation took place, ahead of a move to run nine sports operation, kept their jobs. The only member of staff to be dismissed in the aftermath was producer Stephen Rice. Internal emails later appeared in the Daily Telegraph, suggesting that Malone and Thompson knew the plan ahead of time. Rice took legal action against Nine over the dismissal, claiming he had been made a scapegoat, and the two sides reached an out-of-court settlement in August 2016. But the consequences were worse yet for Sally Faulkner. Her children remained in Lebanon with their father. In 2020, a friend speaking to the press on her behalf revealed that she had not seen them again. Amber Alert If Nine had a tough 2016 because of the Beirut fiasco, an anonymous email would set the stage for a worse 2017 for Seven. The email arrived in newsroom inboxes across Australia at 2.58pm on Sunday the 18th of December 2016. I was among the many recipients. My news judgement failed me when I opened it. I assumed it would never get up as a news story, thanks to Australia's tough defamation laws. The email came from a nondescript address. Media statement, December 2016, at gmail.com. And it had just as nondescript a subject line, Tim Warner and Seven West Media. The content was salacious. Rather than a media statement, it read like the draft of a tabloid news story. The CEO of the Seven Network had a $750,000 performance bonus cut by $100,000 to buy the silence of a Seven West Media employee who for almost two years had been his secret lover, began the email. Former Seven West executive assistant Amber Harrison has come forward with her explosive story of passionate drug fueled sex sessions with the boss of the nation's number one television network, Tim Warner. I was mistaken. At 8.30pm, the Sydney Morning Herald's investigative reporter Kate McClymont was first to publish, with the headline, Legal Stush After Seven West Media Boss Tim Warner's Messy Affair, with Seven confirming there had been an inappropriate relationship between the married Warner and the company's employee. For the next few months, it will be the biggest media story in Australia. Companies have personalities. The scandal would say a lot about Seven's culture. Few other ASX CEOs would have survived the scandal, but proprietor Kerry Stokes was loyal to his executives. Loyal to a fault, as they say. And the vigour with which the company pressed its legal rights against Harrison said a lot about how far Seven would go to fight its corner. As with the lengthy court case of the failure of its C7 pay TV arm and the legal battle to force James Warburton to sit on the sidelines before starting at 10, Seven would aggressively defend its rights. The relationship had run from December 2012 to June 2014. At the time, Harrison was executive assistant to Nick Chan, who ran Seven West Media's Pacific Magazines division. During the course of the affair, In May 2013, Warner was promoted from CEO of the company's television division to CEO of all of Seven West Media 
on a salary of $2.6 million plus bonuses. After the relationship fizzled out, Harrison would claim Seven had tried to force her out by scrutinising her use of a company credit card to find questionable spending and offering her two months' salary to resign. After she refused to quit, Seven would offer her a move to another department away from Warner, along with a $100,000 bonus. But the network would then rescind the job offer, alleging that it had discovered a wider pattern of misspending by Harrison. When the scandal broke, the Seven West Media Board held four crisis meetings in the space of a week. Chairman Kerry Stokes stood by Warner. The board issued a statement to the ASX, repeatedly emphasising that the affair was consensual. Seven agrees that the inappropriate consensual sexual relationship made public by Ms Harrison is deeply regrettable and the chairman has always made clear to Mr Warner that the alleged conduct, even though a personal matter, was completely unacceptable. Separately, Tim Warner apologised at the time and now for the inappropriate consensual relationship with Ms Harrison that commenced prior to his appointment as chief executive and has been working with the board and executive to ensure this improper behaviour is not a part of Seven's culture. Warner issued his own statement. This relationship finished some years ago, and I apologised at the time, and am still trying to make amends. I am obviously filled with the deepest regret and shame. My focus is to continue to work through this in private and minimise the distress to my family. In the months that followed, the story refused to leave the headlines. Two female TV stars launched defamation proceedings against a website that reported allegations from Harrison, strongly denied by Warner, that he had also had inappropriate relationships with them. The board commissioned law firm Allen's Linklaters to investigate Warner's conduct. When it reported back in February 2017, it cleared Warner of misconduct and found that the investigation into Harrison's spending had not been connected to the end of the relationship. It also ruled the allegations of illicit drug use by Mr Warner could not be substantiated. Harrison labelled it a whitewash. Somewhat optimistically, the board issued a statement saying, This has been a tumultuous time for the entire company, and with the receipt of the independent review, this matter can now be brought to a conclusion. Harrison issued her own statement claiming, The lesson for women is don't work for Seven West Media and don't expect to be treated equally or with respect. Male executives at Seven West Media have just been given a green light to prey on female staff and if there is any objection, Seven will smash you with their legal juggernaut. Stokes' assertion that Warner was the best person to help the board ensure such improper behaviour was not part of the company culture was, of course, questionable. The two women on the board of ten would both choose to leave. Sheila McGregor resigned on the day the board received the report exonerating Warner after just two years on the board. And Michelle Deeker did not seek to extend her tenure when her three-year term ended in November that year. As the scandal rumbled on, Harrison and Seven continued to do battle in court. Seven took out a New South Wales Supreme Court injunction against Harrison to stop her sharing company documents, receipts and letters on Twitter. 
It took until July 2017 for Seven to win its case, successfully arguing that Harrison had breached her employment contract. Justice John Sacker ordered that Harrison could not discuss the company, her relationship with Warner or the case itself with the press or on social media. Even that was not to be the end of the matter. In August 2017, Shane Dowling, the blogger who had published the names of the seven West media personalities alleged to have had affairs with Warner, was sentenced to four months jail for contempt of court after ignoring an order to remove their names from his website. And in May 2018, Harrison was also found to be in contempt of court after continuing to talk to the press and to tweet about the issue. New South Wales Supreme Court Justice Michael Pembroke ruled, Unfortunately for her, I can sympathise, but I cannot excuse. In one respect, Warner was fortunate. If the scandal had broken a year later, after the Me Too movement took off globally with revelations about Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, it would have been unlikely the Seven Board would have been so forgiving, even though the affair was consensual. Burn rate. By 2015, the next business models for the TV industry were beginning to emerge. For the previous 60 or so years, free-to-air broadcast television had been Australia's most dominant and profitable medium, while pay TV, in the form of Foxtel, had been around for about 20 years. Both had got as big as they ever would. Although the advertising market was softening, which was the word media companies preferred to use, rather than declining, broadcast free-to-air television was proving to be more resilient than people had expected. For all the fears that VHS, and then digital video recorders, would wipe out the networks when viewers could time-shift their viewing and skip the ads, it hadn't been happening. Most of the audience was still watching as the show went out, particularly where live sport or news was involved. For advertisers who wanted to reach a lot of people all at once, TV was still the expensive but obvious choice. But the networks were beginning to recognise that their licence to broadcast would not be a licence to print money forever. Each year they began to write down the value of their licences in their annual financial reports. The next big connectivity shift was also arriving. The slow and highly politicised rollout of Australia's NBN finally reached the milestone of more than a million premises able to connect in June 2015. And the rollout of 4G mobile networks meant that smartphones were now capable of comfortably streaming video on the go. By the end of August 2014, Telstra had more than 5 million 4G customers and predicted that by February 2015, it would have 4G coverage across 90% of Australia's population. Broadcast was no longer the only television model. Streaming was arriving. In the US, Netflix was beginning to demonstrate that audiences would be willing to pay a subscription fee to stream films and TV shows at a time of their choosing without any interruption from advertising. Also coming down the pipeline was ad-supported video-on-demand. Shows that viewers could stream for free if they were willing to put up with watching advertisements. Soon this would include both catch-up viewing and the network's archive content. 
the jargon evolved as fast as the product. For a while, the industry called it AVOD, ad-supported video on demand. Then BVOD, broadcast video on demand. With a thinking that this sounded slightly more premium because the word broadcast separated it from the likes of YouTube's user-generated content. And in the US, the acronym FAST, free, ad-supported streaming television, would later take hold. But AVOD, BVOD and FAST were basically the same thing. Initially, the TV networks were slow to chase that BVOD audience. They were still concerned that every viewer watching on catch-up would be a viewer lost from their overnight ratings number. And advertisers were yet to get on board with the argument that they should pay just as much for a pre-roll ad for a BVOD viewer as they would to reach someone watching linear TV. So the fight for the new territory would unfold first around subscription video. In early 2015, it kicked off. There were seven in Foxtel's joint venture Presto, nine in Fairfax's joint venture Stan, and of course, overseas player Netflix, all launching within a few weeks of each other. These big three would blast their way onto a battlefield already occupied by a couple of lower-profile local players. EasyFlix and QuickFlix had both had the right idea, but had started their run too soon. Like Netflix in the US, both companies had evolved from DVD rental businesses. EasyFlix, owned by Access Digital Entertainment, was run by former 20th Century Fox Australia sales director Craig White and launched in April 2013. Instead of a subscription model, EasyFlix asked customers to rent individual movies or TV series. But EasyFlix was no match for the subscription streaming models once they arrived. Consumers were keener to pay $10 a month to watch whatever was available on the likes of Stan and Netflix than to pay EasyFlix that price for a single TV series, even if they were able to download their own copy to keep. In August 2015, EasyFlix abruptly closed with a short message posted on its homepage. Thank you for having been a part of EasyFlix. Access Digital Services has decided to end the service offered on this site. QuickFlix hung on for longer. With better funding and a different management team, it might even have come out as a winner, or at the very least sold to one of the winners. QuickFlix had launched as an online DVD rental company in 2003. It floated on the ASX in 2005 and by 2011 had posted out its 10 millionth DVD. Lachlan Murdoch and Wynn Corporation owner Bruce Gordon took modest stakes in the business. And QuickFlix followed a similar strategy to Netflix in the US, starting to offer video streaming in 2011. It began to do deals to make the service available on smart TVs, the Sony PlayStation 3, and on PCs and Apple computers. QuickFlix launched its streaming service with a lavish party at the Ivy Hotel in Sydney. DJ slash model Ruby Rose was billed as the headline guest. Symbolically for what was to come, she called in sick and didn't show up. For a while, QuickFlix seemed to be going places. Its market capitalisation reached more than $70 million in February 2012 when it sold a $10 million stake to US studio HBO, which became the biggest shareholder with a 14% share of the company. 
but the quick flicks burn rate was still too high. Halfway into 2012, QuickFlix revealed that its cash reserves had fallen from $5.7 million to $2.2 million in the space of a year. There's no hiding the fact we have seen a large cash burn as we've made investments into rolling out our digital strategy and a raft of marketing activities, conceded CEO Stephen Langsford. And by the end of the year, the reserves had dropped again to $1.75 million. The company began to take increasingly desperate measures to stay in business, entering into round after round of fundraising, with each new share issue driving its share price down ever further. In March 2013, QuickFlix took a $1.7 million investment from Creed Capital Group. We have a profitable DVD rental business, and obviously it's still early days with streaming, but can build profitability there. Langsford told Mumbrella at the time. Quickflix's room to manoeuvre was reduced again in 2014. Knowing it was about to launch Stan, Nine quietly bought HBO's Quickflix shares for $1 million. Getting out of the investment, even at a loss, suited HBO, which was doing a deal with Foxtel to rebrand its showcase channel as the home of HBO. Nine wasn't interested in owning Quickflix so much as blocking others from doing so. With the shares came rights that if there was a liquidation event for QuickFlix, the owner of the shares would have to be paid $10.5 million. Effectively, the deal stopped the likes of Netflix from launching a takeover to get hold of QuickFlix's customer database without needing to pay nine $10.5 million for the privilege. With the arrival of Stan and Netflix imminent, QuickFlix ran yet more fundraising, trying to bring in $5.7 million it needed for marketing and new content, but existing investors only tapped in 650000 Langsford refused to give up, appealing to customers in December 2014 to buy shares. And even as the company burned through its cash as Netflix, Stan and Presto launched, there were signs QuickFlix might yet survive. In March 2015, it told the market that, although it had made another loss, annual revenues had grown from $8.6 million to $9.2 million. But the ASX update also warned that its continuing viability now depended upon the group's ability to continue to raise capital and form strategic alliances. It was the kind of messages auditors insist on when they think a company may be about to go bust. As it turned out, there was no first mover advantage for QuickFlix. It had been in the right place, but too early. By May 2015, the company was down to $1.26 million in the bank. And 11 months later, when that had sunk to just $659,000, the company finally called in the administrators. Over the previous five years, it had burned through around $60 million in investors' money. As Mumbrella Deputy Editor Nick Christensen wrote at the time, QuickFlix was poised to surf the wave of mainstream video streaming, which was rising across the Pacific in the US. But when that wave eventually arrived, QuickFlix was sucked under and pinned to the bottom until it drowned. Next to go down was Presto, 
the joint venture between Foxtel and Seven. Foxtel had the classic problem of the incumbent not wanting to disrupt itself. In 2015, average revenue per month from each iQbox subscriber was $93, much more than the $10 basic package the likes of Netflix and Stan were offering. Foxtel half-heartedly pursued a series of streaming ventures as it attempted to work out how to hold on to its existing pay TV customers while also winning a slice of the new streaming market. Foxtel's regular strategic pivots on streaming were hard to keep up with for industry watchers, let alone customers. Internally, there were cultural issues at Foxtel, with a revolving door of executives in the marketing department, with each new team seeming to choose a new marketing strategy. And Foxtel's lack of corporate continuity was not helped by increasingly regular changes at the top. Kim Williams, the man who had made Foxtel profitable before departing to run News Corp in late 2011, had been in charge for 10 years. His successor, Richard Frudenstein, stayed for five, before handing over to Peter Tonner when PT's brief period jointly running News Corp alongside Michael Miller had ended. In turn, Tonner put in less than two years at Foxtel before being succeeded by Fox Sports CEO Patrick Delaney in 2018. Foxtel entered the streaming arena with the launch of Foxtel Play in July 2013 as an alternative way of subscribing to Foxtel without needing an IQ box. Subscriptions started at $25 per month, rising to $50, depending whether subscribers added on sport, drama and movie packages. Confusingly, the broadcaster also offered Foxtel Go, which allowed existing Foxtel IQ subscribers to access its content on smartphones and tablets. Foxtel had then launched film streaming service Presto in March 2014, which would allow customers to stream whatever movies Foxtel had licensed at the time for $24.99 per month, without needing a full Foxtel subscription. Announcing the move, Foxtel Chief Executive Richard Frudenstein said, Our aim is to utilise Foxtel's assets and expertise in a smart way to capture a healthy share of the growing digital market. But initially, Presto would only allow streaming to computers, with a promise that an app for tablets would follow later. It wasn't long before Presto would be rebooted. Once Seven turned down the opportunity to be part of Stan in favour of getting in bed with Foxtel, Presto became a joint venture. The reworked version of Presto launched in January 2015, offering TV shows as well as movies. The price would be $9.99 per month for television shows, including Seven's local drama slate and some HBO content, but that would not include first-run HBO content, which would be reserved for Foxtel. The key HBO show driving Foxtel subscribers was Game of Thrones, which was also one of the most pirated TV shows of all time. Just to make the pricing even more confusing, those who wanted Presto's movies, as well as the TV shows, would need to pay the higher price of $14.99. But the concern about cannibalising Foxtel's main customer base was ever-present. So Presto could not be streamed to televisions 
only to PCs, Macs and some tablets. And it offered a second-rate experience at that. Within a few months, it became obvious that Presto was not working. Forums were full of complaints about the poor quality of the experience. On the website Product Review, 292 of the 338 ratings gave Presto just one star out of five. A typical review read, Library is probably worse than Netflix and Stan. Shows are not updated regularly. Website is so slow it lags. Website is really hard to navigate. Not categorised properly. No app for Apple TV, so I have to use AirPlay when I want to watch it on TV. No wonder it's got the worst rating. Wouldn't recommend this to anyone. I have it for free, but would still rather pay for Netflix. Presto was an embarrassing bloody nose for Foxtel, which had once offered cutting-edge technology in its IQ boxes, thanks to the company's connections to B-Sky-B in the UK. But Presto had been a technical, strategic and marketing failure. By the end of 2016, Foxtel and Seven threw in the towel. Foxtel bought Seven out of the arrangement, closed Presto, and moved its subscribers across to Foxtel Play. Just to add to customers' confusion, April 2017 saw the news that Foxtel Play would relaunch as Foxtel Now. And in September 2019, the company said it had decided there would be only one app that would work across all streaming platforms. All customers would be asked to subscribe to the Foxtel Go app instead. Things could have been very different for Seven, if it had accepted Nine's invitation to be part of Stan. In media, and particularly digital media, domain expertise counts for almost everything. At Stan, CEO Mike Sneesby's engineering background, along with the experience he gained in the internet TV space during his time at Integral in the Middle East, left him well prepared for the challenge. He also made a good appointment in Chief Technology Officer Damien Cronin, who moved across from sister company 9MSN. An early call the duo needed to make was whether to base Stan on the video streaming platform already in use at 9MSN, or to build from scratch. The decision to start again from the ground up proved to be the right one. That one decision on its own was the most important, says Sneesby. Starting it up from scratch freed us from a huge amount of baggage. Everything we used and built was cloud-based. We could plug and play. The financial woes of QuickFlix and the inadequacies of Presto opened a glide path for Netflix and Stan. The two quickly became market leaders. Netflix had an early advantage. Its original shows, such as political thriller House of Cards and prison drama Orange is the New Black, had already made a name for the service long before it officially launched in Australia. Customers with virtual private networks had already been using their VPNs to circumvent geographical restrictions to subscribe to the US Netflix. And until it was ready to launch in Australia, the company did little to discourage that. Stan based most of its launch publicity on the Breaking Bad spin-off, Better Call Saul. It made the most of its tie-ins with Nine and Fairfax with on-air ads and cover wraps of the newspapers. 
It was hard to be sure exactly how far ahead of the pack Netflix was because it released little data. But household surveys by the likes of Roy Morgan Research suggested that Netflix had a comfortable lead with Stan second. In May 2015, Stan commissioned its first original series, No Activity, from independent Sydney production company Jungle Boys. A string of further content followed, including horror, Wolf Creek, far-right drama, Romper Stomper, comedy, The Other Guy, Jackie Weaver drama, Bloom, and stand-up comedy series, One Night Stan. So long as the audience appreciated the content, the economics of original commissions began to stack up. Once some of the cost was recouped by selling overseas rights, the $30 million to a series would be comparable to licensing US-made content. Stan's studio deals were based on a fixed price rather than rising with the number of subscribers. This business model meant that once it reached break-even, almost all of the dollars from each new subscriber would drop straight to the profit bottom line. But it also meant that at launch, the business was on track to lose $50 million per year. Stan would only turn profitable once it reached around 1 million subscribers. Nine boss Hugh Marks would say later, Stan was always a big risk when we did it. Between us and Fairfax, we probably started with an investment case of $150 million that became $250 million, but we could see the trajectory. Sneezeby recalls, The most stressful time was when we had the least subscribers and the highest burn rate right at the beginning. We were losing $1 million per week. The Great Geoblock of Wollongong Most changes and media habits creep up, until one day you look up and realise that it's all around. The day you notice more people on the bus are on their phones than reading newspapers. The day you throw out your CD collection because you stream everything on Spotify now. The day you give away your DVD box sets because it's easier just to watch it on Netflix. Ad-supported video on demand took a bit longer to take off than the paid streaming services. The people in charge of driving it were scared of accelerating the turn-off of broadcast TV. It came in fits and starts. Seven and Yahoo launched Plus Seven as part of their digital joint venture in January 2010. But initially there wasn't much content, just clips like bonus scenes from Home and Away. Ten was first to give it a serious go, launching Ten Play in September 2013, heralding it as the first phase of its TV Everywhere strategy. The service was available on computers, on apps, on game consoles and on some smart TVs. It included live streaming of its broadcast channels. Ten's chief digital officer, Rebecca Horn, said in the launch announcement, Tenplay is the next stage in Network 10's digital evolution. It represents a true transition from linear broadcasting to a consumer content experience that is multi-screen and multi-platform, giving people access to Network 10's content anytime, anywhere and on any device. Initially, the Tenplay platform was clunky. Catch-up viewing of shows would see ads crash in at inopportune moments rather than in a natural break. 
And because the advertising market was yet to buy in, the same few ads would be shown incessantly. Seven went a bit further with Plus Seven during 2015, investing in technology to make it work on all devices and, even more importantly, announcing in August that it would start streaming all its broadcast channels. It promoted the relaunch with a cheesy marketing campaign, featuring a bus full of commuters cheering because they were able to watch Sunrise on the way to work. Nine quickly followed suit in January 2016, when it reworked its Nine Jump In service as Nine Now, offering live streaming of all its shows, along with catch-up content. It also took the brave move of obliging all users to sign in. While it risked slowing take-up, it meant that the network began to gather useful data about its audience, which will be important to advertisers. The move by the networks to stream their broadcast channels went down badly with their regional affiliates, who feared losing eyeballs to their metro partners. It triggered a months-long court battle with Nine's regional affiliate, Wynn Corporation, arguing that Nine now should not be available in its licence areas. The case was nicknamed the Great Geoblock of Wollongong, after the location of Wynn's headquarters. However, the court came down in Nine's favour, ruling that streaming was not broadcasting, and that Nine was free to stream its content nationally. In 2017, once Seven had managed to end its partnership with Yahoo and take sole ownership of its digital rights, it reworked its Plus Seven offering, less than imaginatively rebranding it Seven Plus. On stage at Mumbrella 360 in 2019, Nine CEO Hugh Marks argued that the new business models of television, including ad-supported broadcast video on demand and subscription video on demand, were evidence the medium was not in decline. The fact is, what we call television is not just free-to-air television anymore. We've got a great BVOD product in Nine Now, We've got an investment in a great SVOD service in Stan, and they're all television for me. I always had this vision that we could turn ourselves from a broadcaster into a content business. Negative noise. No television network has the perfect schedule. If it's winning the ratings on the East Coast, it's losing out West. If it's winning the 6pm news battle, it's probably losing at 7pm. If it's topping the 16 to 39 demographic, somebody else is winning 25-54. Nine's longest losing streak was at breakfast time. Seven had launched Sunrise in 2002 and raced past Today in the ratings during 2004, never to be caught. Whatever Nine tried, the Today Show just could not quite catch Seven Sunrise, presented by David Koch and Melissa Doyle. On some days, Today would win, but never across a ratings year. The most dangerous moment for Sunrise had come in 2013, when Doyle left the show. The transition was cleanly handled, though, with the presenter staying with the network in a variety of news presentation roles. The lack of rancour protected Doyle's successor, Samantha Armitage, from any backlash from loyal Sunrise viewers. Today hosts Carl Stefanovic and Lisa Wilkinson continued to plug away and the gap continued to close. 
Daily and even weekly wins for today became more common. With ensemble casts and identikit studio sets, the two shows were similar. The biggest point of difference was the male hosts. Kosh leaned into his daggy dad, small businessman persona. Stefanovic evolved from his wooden beginnings into an on-air larrikin, spontaneously funny, who famously went on air the worse for wear the morning after the 2009 Logies. He became a key part of Nine's talent lineup, with the network successfully campaigning for him to win the gold Logie for most popular personality in 2011. Having come in with a journalism background, Stefanovic was also versatile enough to do hard news, whether helming breaking coverage on Today, doing political interviews or contributing to 60 Minutes. In October 2017, Wilkinson's contract was due to expire and Nine was unwilling to meet her increased salary demands. So she left the show and the network, taking up a role at Tens The Project instead. Nine's terse statement made clear that the departure was about money, saying it was unable to meet the expectations of its former star. Nine promoted newsreader Georgie Gardner as Wilkinson's replacement, but the new pairing of Stefanovic and Gardner would have little time to gel before being derailed. In March 2018, New Idea magazine, owned by rival Seven West Media's Pacific magazines, pulled in a scoop. The gossipy weekly title bought a story from an Uber driver who had given a lift to Carl Stefanovic's brother Peter, who presented Weekend Sunrise, and his wife, Today newsreader Sylvia Jeffries. During the late night drive, Peter had put Carl on speaker while they spent 45 minutes discussing work and colleagues. During the call, Carl complained that his new co-host Gardner sat on the fence rather than sharing her opinions with viewers. She would have to step up if she wanted to stay on the show, he said. After first reports suggested that the Uber driver had covertly recorded the call, New Idea claimed prior to publication that the driver in fact simply had a really good memory. Few people in the industry believed that the magazine would be willing to publish such detailed claims without having proof. Instead, it seemed likely that the illegality of covertly recording a call had caused New Idea to adjust its version of events. It was a second black mark for Stefanovic with the network. He had been the subject of relentless tabloid coverage since 2016 when he moved out of the home he shared with his wife of 21 years, Cassandra Thorburn, and their three children. The coverage of the separation played badly with the Today audience, particularly when Stefanovic quickly moved into a new relationship. The third black mark and final straw came when the 2018 ratings year was over. Stefanovic married his new partner, Jasmine Yabra, in Mexico in a glitzy ceremony. The couple gave the pictures to Who magazine, owned by rival Seven West Media's Pacific magazines. The glamorous pictures made Stefanovic look the opposite of the everyman breakfast host and triggered a new wave of negative headlines. Nine lost patience, removing Stefanovic from today and it went for wholesale change, 
downgrading the role of showbiz presenter Richard Wilkins and axing sports presenter Tim Gilbert. Nine's news director, Darren Wick, was blunt on the reasons, telling the Sydney Morning Herald. Up until very recently, Carl was going to be part of today in 2019 and we thought we could ride out the negative attention he was receiving. But the wedding showed the negative noise was not going anywhere and it was time for us, and for Carl, to take a rest, to have a breather. We truly believe this is what is best for both the show and for Carl. Game, set and match. Once again, the networks went into battle for sports rights. It was like playing three-dimensional chess with your eyes closed. The TV rights for the cricket and the tennis were both going to come up at almost the same time. All three free-to-air networks, 7, 9 and 10, plus pay TV broadcaster Foxtel, would be in the mix. Seven's commitment to tennis went back to 1973, when it started telecasting the Australian Open. Nine's connection to international cricket went back to 1977, when proprietor Kerry Packer bludgeoned his way to the test rights by launching rival competition World Series Cricket. Ten had impressively grown the audience of short-form 2020 Big Bash League cricket since winning the rights in 2013. And Foxtel had been the first broadcaster to put BBL on the air when the T20 format started in Australia in 2011. Although AFL and NRL were the most important sports for broadcasters, the tennis and cricket came close behind, providing wallpaper to fill the summer and a promotional launch pad to kick off the ratings year. They were also valuable hospitality opportunities for the networks to entertain advertisers and schmooze new sponsors. Mini burgers in Nine's double-sized box on the first day of the Sydney Test, or Champagne with Seven at the men's final in Melbourne, were persuasive for marketers wavering on how to allocate their budget. For broadcasters, there were more variables involved in cricket than in tennis. A home ashes series against England would always rate better than a series against Pakistan, for instance. And rain delays or a test result inside three days could leave hours of low rating, unfilled airtime. With multiple venues and a longer schedule, the production costs of covering the cricket were also greater. In tennis, the Australian Open was only for two weeks and the progress or otherwise of Australian players into the second week had a big impact on rating. Australian viewers are nothing if not patriotic. And there was a natural order of things. Cricket was in Nine's DNA. Seven got the tennis and Ten sometimes got some leftovers. But under boss Hugh Marks, Nine was beginning to think the unthinkable. Was it time to walk away from the cricket? Last time round, in 2013, Nine had arguably overpaid for the test rights. Marx's predecessor, David Gingell, had been forced to offer $400 million in cash, plus $50 million in advertising over five years, to see off a rival bid from Ten. Ten had picked up the rights to Big Bash for the relative bargain price of $100 million across the five years, and had done an excellent job of promoting and building the T20 franchise. 
A small group of Senior Nine staff, led by Director of Sport Tom Malone, began to wargame the alternatives if the network walked away from cricket. Malone had been with the network for more than a decade at this point, including as executive producer of Today from 2006 to 2012, when it was at its most competitive against Sunrise. He'd also been executive producer of 60 Minutes, switching across to sport just before the Beirut debacle. Cricket was costing nine $120 million per year in rights and production costs. Advertising and sponsorship did not cover that. It was an investment in the halo effect to make sure the rest of the ratings year took off with a bang. Nine was also starting to feel taken for granted by the administrators of Cricket Australia, concerned that the expansion of the Big Bash schedule was taking place at the expense of international cricket. As Malone puts it, there was extreme arrogance from Cricket Australia. They did not want to listen to where we saw the value. Marx saw it the same way. We were a little bit worried. In fact, we were a lot worried about where cricket was going, he told me in an on-stage interview at Mumbrella 360 in 2019. In particular, the various forms of the game and what that meant for that sport going forward. We could see in the way that Cricket Australia were looking at their sport that they were certainly prioritising an extension of the Big Bash to quite a significant number of new games over the rights that we held, which was the traditional international cricket. How we could play in that ecosystem was quite difficult to see, and we were certainly concerned about it. A working group of about eight staff began to meet every fortnight to make a plan. We started to shape the prism through which we would make the decision on cricket or on tennis, or on both or neither and we started putting together a number, says Malone. At Nine's annual management getaway in New Zealand, Marx asked his team to take a vote. We sat down at dinner and I said, hands up cricket, hands up tennis. Everyone, without doubt, without exception, was on to make a shift. There were still major hurdles to overcome, not least of which was that as the incumbent, Seven was entitled to a three-month exclusive negotiation period with Tennis Australia, which kicked off in late 2017. The nine management had to keep their fingers crossed that Tennis Australia did not sign a new deal. Says Malone, We had talked to them before the three months had started, and then we had to wait. Meanwhile, nine was trying to keep a second plate spinning. If it missed out on tennis... The network might yet need cricket, even if they were falling out of love with the people running the organisation. Nine perceived power games, with discourtesies like senior staff being kept waiting in reception when they visited Cricket Australia's headquarters for negotiations. Says Malone, in early 2018, Cricket Australia kept delaying things which suited us, so we were not chasing them up. Managing to keep the discussion secret until the deal was done, Nine agreed a five-year, $60 million per year deal with Tennis Australia. Crucially, it included all rights, including broadcast, mobile, digital, streaming and social platforms. Although it would cover a shorter period, it was much cheaper than cricket. Says Marx, it was a $50 million fixed cost reduction in our business. 
we were able to reduce our cost base and get a sport we were in synchronicity with. On the morning the deal was due to be signed in Melbourne, 29th of March 2018, there was a last-minute hitch. Marx's flight from Sydney was delayed. The deal was signed on Nine's behalf by Malone and Director of Strategy and Corporate Development, Alexi Baker. Baker was a rising star within Nine. She started her career at the Boston Consulting Group before becoming an analyst at Credit Suisse. She joined Nine in 2011 as a strategy manager before being promoted to Corporate Development and Investments Director in 2015. She had been on the Tennis Working Committee throughout the process. To shock in the corridors of Cricket Australia in Melbourne, an incumbent seven in Sydney, Nine's tennis bombshell dropped on the ASX at lunchtime. The announcement was calibrated to emphasise that the deal was future-proofed. Critical to this deal is the exclusive acquisition of all rights, which means we are unrestricted in our ability to serve tennis to audiences across the country, anytime, anywhere, on the platform of their choosing, said Malone in the announcement. The chess game was not over quite yet. Much as Nine enjoyed no longer being beholden to Cricket Australia, it was still willing to bid for the rights to the international game at the right price. And of course, dropping out of the bidding might have allowed a rival to pick up the rights too cheaply. In reality, it was a question of who was most desperate, seven or ten. Seven would feel the loss of tennis more keenly, but without Big Bash, ten would lack any top-tier sport. Three forms of cricket were up for grabs, tests, one-day internationals and Big Bash. Ten paired up with nine for the bidding. The plan would see nine hang on to the tests, while ten would retain Big Bash and gain the one-day internationals. Seven bid alongside Foxtel. For the bid from nine and ten, the plan was for nine to contribute $50 million for the tests, and ten to initially offer a low-ball $70 million for Big Bash and the one-day internationals, making a total bid of $120 million per year. Nine was firm that it would go no higher on its contribution to the bid. Cricket Australia's chairman, David Peaver, took an unusual approach to the negotiations, accusing TENS management in an email of being bottom feeders in this market. The email was soon leaked to the Sydney Morning Herald. TEN did indeed increase its share of the bid significantly, to $145 million per year, creating a total offer of $195 million per year. Ten boss Paul Anderson shook hands with Cricket Australia boss James Sutherland on what he understood to be an agreed deal. Hours later, Seven and Foxtel came back over the top, with Seven putting in $82 million and Foxtel $115 million per year making for a total bid of $197 million per year for the six years of the deal. Despite the fact that it would put some cricket behind the Foxtel paywall for the first time, Cricket Australia took the slightly higher bid. Some believe the decision was influenced by Peaver's anger at his email to 10 having leaked. Seven got what it desperately needed, endless hours of Big Bash League along with the tests. In total, 400 hours of live sport. 
Foxtel got to simulcast them and in addition won the exclusive rights to Australia's One Day International and T20 games. It was the first time the One Day Internationals went behind a paywall. Seven CEO Tim Warner gave the ASX the good news. This is a great deal for Seven, for our viewers, our advertisers, our shareholders and for the game itself. For Seven, it means that for the first time in our history, a single free-to-air network will be delivering the number one summer and winter sports, cricket and AFL. Two out of three is bad. The regulation of Australia's media has never been something to make one feel good about the quality of Australia's civic values. The media owners' voices are too powerful for governments to pick unnecessary fights with them. Who wants to annoy a company that talks to more than a million voters at six o'clock every night? And there's plenty that the government can do to help the big media companies, so the backscratching goes both ways. As Labour's Stephen Conroy discovered when he belatedly tried to enact wholesale change in 2013, it could be almost impossible to change the law if some of the media moguls are against it. So Australia's media ownership laws remain stuck in limbo. Most of the players agreed they needed updating, but wanted different things. A key issue was the two out of three rule, which said that media companies could be in TV, newspapers or radio, but not all three. Also at stake was the 75% reach rule, which said television networks were only allowed to broadcast to that proportion of the population. Getting rid of these two rules would drive up the share price of all the media companies in anticipation of a round of media consolidation. Then there were the laws that the TV networks needed to pay a percentage of their revenues in exchange for their licence to use the public airwaves. More controversial was the anti-siphoning list, which protected key sports for free-to-air TV, meaning that Foxtel would never get close to the household penetration sister company B-Sky B had enjoyed in the UK, thanks to Premier League soccer and Test cricket being behind its paywall. After Conroy's failure to get his new laws through, a change of government and the arrival of Malcolm Turnbull as communications minister saw no changes either. Turnbull's successor, Mitch Fifield, began to make the usual noises about law changes in March 2016, unveiling details of a bill he proposed to put before Parliament. The reach rule and the two out of three rule would both go, but just as Conroy's legislation ran out of time before the dissolution of Parliament, so too did Fifield's when Turnbull called the July election. And by November 2016, with Labour opposing the removal of the two out of three rule because it feared it would lead to a loss of media diversity, Fifield conceded there were not enough sitting days left to get it through in 2016. By now, the pressure at high levels was growing. With Network 10 on the verge of being swallowed up by News Corp, it would require a change of the law to make it legal. Lachlan Murdoch owned radio stations Nova and Smooth FM, while News Corp was the country's biggest newspaper publisher. Owning 10, too, would be stymied by the two out of three rule. Turnbull and Fifield tried again in May 2017. There was something for everyone, so long as you didn't think too hard about the public interest. The two out of three rule and the 75% reach rules would vanish. 
broadcasting license fees, which once brought in more than a quarter of a billion dollars a year to the public coffers, would go. And in a nod to Foxtel, the anti-siphoning list would be trimmed. As an added future slush fund, there would be money from the government to support the broadcasting of women's and niche sports. The next month, the media companies rallied behind Turnbull and Fifield, with all of the CEOs travelling to Canberra in an attempt to signal to politicians that there was consensus. It was a carefully calibrated photo opportunity. In the front row, on the far left, Michael Miller, boss of the most powerful company, News Corp. Front row, far right, was Fairfax media boss Greg Highwood, the second most powerful CEO. Sandwiched between them, Fifield, Turnbull and Nova Entertainment CEO Cathy O'Connor. The lack of diversity in the photo was striking. 15 middle-aged white men, plus O'Connor as the only woman. The joint statement from the bosses positioned the law change as being needed to strengthen local media against the rise of Google and Facebook. Australian media operators must be allowed to compete more effectively against multinational internet giants that are taking hundreds of millions of advertising dollars out of Australia, the statement read. Finally, it went to Parliament. With the help of crossbench senators voting with the government, the bill eventually passed the Senate on the 14th of September 2017. Now, every media company was either predator or pray. The remake was on. That was the latest chapter of my narration of my book, Media Unmade. You can buy the book online and at all good bookstores. I hope you enjoyed it. Remember, if you want to hear all future chapters, you'll need to be a paying subscriber of Unmade. You can sign up at unmade.media. That's the URL, simply unmade. Media. Once you do, it only takes a couple of clicks to add the paid-for feed to the podcast app of your choice. The book was written and recorded in Northwest Tasmania on the land of the Palawa people. This podcast is produced with the enthusiastic help of Abe's Audio. For voiceovers and audio production, from corporate to commercial, go to abesaudio.com.au. I'll be back with the next chapter soon. Toodle pip.